Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, uh, this day that you have given to us, a beautiful day today. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here in your house, to hear your word, to be reminded of your calling on our life, your will for our life. So bless us as you speak into our life in the power of your word, that you may shape us and mold us. Grant to us clear minds, clean hearts, and right spirits to receive the word of God so that we might continually be shaped and molded as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at Concordia Mequon, I was studying initially to be a high school math teacher. And I would take math classes down in Albrecht Hallway with a professor named Dr. Baum. So Calc 1, Calc 2, Calc 3, linear algebra and differential equations. I know you guys are all thinking, that sounds like a lot of fun. It was wonderful, riveting classes. And, uh, but we would get uh, homework on Mondays and Wednesdays, and then all our homework was due on Fridays. And so we would have study sessions on Thursday night uh, among those that were in these classes, comparing our answers and working through them if we got different answers. And many times you would, because of the length of these questions, do your questions on computer paper because you would start with a small equation, but as you were trying to solve it, it would get really big and then would get really small again at the very end. And we would turn those all in on Friday, and I still remember many a Monday, Dr. Baum walking into our classroom on Monday morning with our homework in hand, just rubbing his forehead and shaking his head. And when he did that, that was never a good sign. You did not want your homework back on those mornings. But he would hand the homework back, and we would be looking through our homework, and he would look at us way too many times and say, many of you need to go back to third grade. The reason was, is we didn't get those problems wrong because we had the wrong formulas, or we didn't know how to apply the formulas, or, or we didn't understand these complex equations. Our biggest struggle in solving those problems was addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. We got those problems wrong because of the basics. And he would say, you need to go back to third grade so you can get the basics, the foundational things to math. This summer, we are calling our series Foundations or Back to the Basics. And what we mean by that is, is we're just gonna go back and talk about what is at the foundation of what we believe and especially what we believe within the Lutheran church. Now, if you think about what Luther taught, Luther taught in the Lutheran church according to three solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fides, faith alone. But when Luther wrote, he wrote them in such a way that God's people could teach them and understand them. And, and the place that he did that was in the catechism. And so this summer, we are going to go back to the catechism. And we're going to just relearn some of the things that many of us learned many, many years ago. And we're going to start by just walking through the Ten Commandments to begin with. And then uh, we're going to go through, there's actually six chief parts of the Ten Commandments. The Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession, Absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Now, we're not going to have enough time this summer to go through all of them. But we're going to focus on the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to jump to the sacraments in the back. And then we'll come revisit over the next year uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. 
Now, in understanding that this is the catechism, and many of you received something like this, either it was a blue one or the red one or the maroon one, and now it's back to this blue one again, right? When you received this, you came to understand that the catechism is actually, what Luther wrote is only this part of it. The rest of this is not part of what Luther wrote. So why is the rest of this included in most catechisms? Well, the reason is because so many people would ask, well, okay, this was what Luther said, but Luther wasn't inspired. Like, that's not in the Bible, the Ten Commandments is, but his explanation isn't. So why do we believe that what Luther said is true? Well, that's what the rest of this is about. These are all Bible passages and explanations that show how what Luther wrote is supported clearly by what the scriptures say. And we're gonna go back to the basics of understanding through the catechism, what does it mean to adhere to, to understand, and to be Christians who embrace the Ten Commandments. Today we're gonna to focus on the first two, but we're gonna look at, at this idea that God gives us a law, commandments, to live by. And this didn't start at Mount Sinai, although that's surely where Moses received the Ten Commandments, but God's people always had a law. In fact, even before sin came into this world in Genesis 3, there was law. In fact, Adam and Eve didn't live necessarily by the gospel as we know it, but they actually lived by the law. They had a law, one law, one commandment. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And every time they walked past that tree, they honored God. And they lived by that one commandment. In fact, they didn't need the gospel because there was no sin. And without sin, there was no necessity to believe in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because in a perfect world, that wasn't needed. He didn't need to save us from those things. They lived by the law. But when they broke that law and they sinned, and sin entered into our world, we come to understand that sin seeks to destroy every aspect of our life. Everything. And so God gave us these Ten Commandments for us so that we might have a better life. And we're going to take a look at that in just a moment. But these were God's gifts to his people. God's will for our lives that, that Moses received on Mount Sinai. And these Ten Commandments, they still matter. And there are some who will say, well, the commandments don't matter because now that Jesus came and the, the cross and the resurrection took place, uh, we just live by grace. So we don't really need the law because we have the gospel and that's all that necessary. But, but what the law does for us is the first and primary use of the law is the law shows us our sin. And we need to know our sin because if we don't know our sin, then why would we need a savior? We need to know our sin. Otherwise, our question is, saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? In fact, there are many people in the world today that live that way. Like, I don't need to be saved from anything. I'm fine. But when we understand the truth of God's word, we understand we are not fine. We are not okay. Sin is not just a little problem that we can get rid of. In fact, uh, in these Dr. Baum classes, we would really only get four questions a week. 
And Monday and Tuesday, or Monday and Wednesday, he would assign the questions, and Friday he would turn those questions in, and then you'd receive those uh, uh, corrected papers back on Monday. And each of those questions was worth 25 points because there was only four questions. But the wonderful news for us in that class is even if you got a, a addition or subtraction, multiplication or division mistake wrong in that, he wouldn't take off all 25 points for one little mistake. You might lose one, two, three points for that, but if you applied the rest of it correctly, he would only take some points away and give you partial credit for all of the right things you did. That's not how it works in our life. God doesn't give us partial credit for the good things we do. Sin doesn't just take a few marks off of us and say, well, you're good enough. Sin reminds us that we have fully fallen short of the glory of God. Sin reminds us that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. Sin tells us, the law tells us, that even if you get one little addition, multiplication, subtraction wrong, you lose it all. It's all or nothing. And the wages of that sin is death. And the law, what it does is it shows us our sinfulness. In fact, listen to these words of Paul in Romans chapter 7. He says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law did not say, you shall not covet. And so what the law does is it reveals our sinfulness because the more we understand our sinfulness, the more we understand our need for somebody to pay the price for our sin. And the price for sin is death. And that's why Jesus died, suffered and died on a cross for you and for me so that he would take the wages of our sin, the wages of just one small mistake that ruins everything from our life. And so the law, it shows our sin. But it does another thing. The law for a Christian also guides our life. It shows what God wants for us. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What the law of God does is it guides us. It directs us. It helps us to understand what God wants for our life. Now, that's a key understanding. That it's not what God wants from us. It's what God wants for us. Because God doesn't need anything from us. It's not like when we try to adhere to the Ten Commandments, God goes, you made me feel a lot better about myself today because you honored me by doing what I asked. God doesn't need anything from us. God is fully sufficient in himself. What the Ten Commandments is about is, is God wants something better for you and for your life. So the fourth commandment, on your father and mother, and we'll look at these later in more detail, but on your father and mother, what God wants is he wants better family relationships. Or the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What does God want for you? He wants you to have a better marriage. Or the eighth commandment, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. What does God want for you? He wants better friendships and relationships with coworkers and neighbors and the people around you. 
All of these commandments, it's not about what God wants from you, but what God wants for you so that you might have the life that God wants you to have. And we know that we will never adhere to it, that we will never perfectly fulfill the law or even come close to it. And that's what we have Jesus for, who paid the price for our fallenness so that we might be restored by his grace to step back into that life that God wants for us. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the first commandment, and we're going to look at the context into which Moses received the commandments. Exodus chapter 20. So Moses is up on the mountain with God, and God says this, and God spoke all these words. Now notice it says these words. There is no mention of it. It doesn't say, and so God spoke the Ten Commandments. Though that's not in there. It says God just spoke these words. In fact, when you read through this, if you read it in context in Exodus chapter 20, what you come to find out is that there is a number of ways to number the Ten Commandments. This is why different traditions number the Ten Commandments differently. So my wife, her family comes from a Baptist tradition. So they have four commandments that deal with loving God. So you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is you shall not make a graven image. The third one is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the fourth one is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. In the Lutheran tradition, we combine those first two as our first commandment, as we'll talk about today. And then in the Baptist tradition, they take commandments 9 and 10 for us about coveting, and they lump them into one commandment. And there's no right or wrong in how the commandments are ordered as long as they're all there because that's what the Word of God teaches us in Exodus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and in other places of the Scriptures. But as he's speaking these, notice what God says. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he even gets into the Ten Commandments, this is how he introduces them. What do you notice about what God is revealing about himself before he gives the Ten Commandments? Do you notice he reveals his grace first? He says, I brought you, I delivered you, I rescued you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I brought you out of the slavery of your life. And God says that to you today. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the slavery to sin the slavery to brokenness, the slavery to the things of this world. I delivered you. I rescued you. And before I give you my will for your life, God says, I want you to know the type of God that I am that you're receiving this from. The God who wants a life for you that is better than anything that this world could ever offer to you. And that's where he starts before he gets into the Ten Commandments. Now, before we get to commandment one, which is the very next verse, I want to ask you this question, which sets up this first commandment. It's the question we need to ask ourselves as we are reading the first commandment and understanding if we follow it and how we don't follow it. And it's this, what in your life, if you were to lose it, would cause your life to come crashing down all around you? What in your life if it completely disappeared, it was just gone, would cause your life to come crashing down all around you. For a five-year-old, that's probably like a teddy bear or a blanket, isn't it? For a 15-year-old, it's an iPhone. 
but we all have something. Something that if we were to lose it, we would lose it. Because it's that important to us. And if there is something in your life that is so significant that if you lost it, you would start to question God, you would start to walk away from faith, then that has become an idol in your life. It's the question of this. If you had everything you had ever wanted, everything you ever dreamed of, the perfect house, the perfect family, uh, the perfect job, the perfect vacations, the perfect possessions, everything you ever wanted but didn't have Jesus, would you be content because you had it all? You might have an idol if that's true. Or if you lost all of it. You had everything you wanted, but then you lost it. You lost your family, you lost your job, you lost your possessions, you lost your house. If you lost, if you became Job, but you had Jesus, would it be enough? And if not, you might have an idol in your life. There are idols, and God speaks about that, and he says this. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and you shall not serve them. Notice what he says there. He goes, I expect to have no rivals. You shall have no other gods before me, not just above me, but even next to me, not even in front of my face. That's actually the actual Hebrew translation is, you shall have no other gods in front of my face. I shall not see them, hear about them, know about them. You shall have no other gods. And the way that he is speaking about this or talking about this is you can think about an athletic competition. If you have an athletic competition, the goal of an athletic competition is to get on the podium. You want to take first, second, or third, and ultimately the goal is to take first. You want to be at the top of the podium at the end of the day. And what God is saying is that all too often, you and I, we put something else at the top of the podium. We put something else at the the top. So my question for you is, if you were to look at everything you had in your life, what would you put on the podium of your life? Where would your marriage go? Your children go? Your friendships go? Where would your image go? Where would your company go? Your job, your house, your possessions, your livelihood, your reputation. Where would those things go on the podium of your life? Or if somebody did an audit of your life, they came into your life and and they looked at and reviewed your calendar and your checkbook and they looked at how you spent your energy and your time. Uh, They saw what you valued and, and how you built your house and put your house together. They watched your family and they just observed you for a month. How would somebody who was looking into your life order what you value in your life? by taking an audit of it. And if anything else is at the top, we have an idol. In fact, Luther said it this way. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, anything that takes the place of God, that is really your God, your functional savior. Whatever your heart finds ultimate hope, peace, joy, strength, excitement, love, comfort, direction, whatever that is, that becomes your idol. 
And if you follow after anything else in your life outside of what God says, then that becomes your idol. If the words of this world influence you more than the words of God does, then this world becomes your idol. If your friend's words, if your spouse's words, if your children's words, if your parents' words mean more than the words of God do, then that becomes your idol. And that's what God is speaking about here, that it is His words and His ways are the only words and ways that we should be listening to. You shall have no other gods before me. And as he's speaking about it, notice what he's saying. It says, not in the image of anything in heaven or on earth or in the water or above it or anything like that. What he is reminding us of this is, is we will always worship something. There is no such thing as an atheist because everybody worships something. Everybody believes in something. It's just, do you worship the creator or the creation? Do you worship the one who made everything? or was made by the one who made everything. And that includes yourself, become some, because sometimes we even become an idol to ourselves. He says, you shall not bow down to them and serve them. And even think about that bowing down. Just get that image of someone bowing down in your mind. Someone who bows down, usually bows down and, and gets on their knees and then bows their head. And in ancient times, what that was doing was it was exposing their neck to the king, so that the king would either show them mercy or would take their life. It was one or the other. That act of bowing down was complete submission, saying, I put my life in your hands. And God is saying, why would you bow down to anything else other than a God who shows grace and mercy, who has delivered you and rescued you from Egypt? Why would you give your life over to anything of this world when I have delivered your life from this world. He says, it makes no sense to put anything else before me. Not sports, academics, possessions, jobs, approval, family, or self. Now, God is not saying that these things are bad. It's not that any of those things are bad. Jobs are not bad, families are not bad, children are not bad, although there are times when they are. Our possessions are not bad, sports are not bad, academics are not bad, until they become the idol that stands over God. That's what he is talking about here. And then he goes on and says this, he says, don't do these things for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. The very beginning, you read that word jealous. As I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And many times we can misunderstand what that means, that God is a jealous God. Because we think about jealousy in the way that the world thinks about jealousy, right? So I look at you and I go, man, I really like your, I am jealous of your jacket, meaning I want your jacket for myself. I want what's not mine, and I want to take what's not mine for myself because I want it for me, for my benefit. And that's the two problems with worldly jealousy, right? It's not mine, and I want to take it for my benefit. That's worldly jealousy. But when God speaks about jealousy, God is only wanting what's already his, 
When he says, I am jealous of you, it's because you're his. God created you. He made you. You're his. And so his jealousy is over something that's already his and not for his benefit, but for your benefit. I want you not because I need you to make me better. He says, I want you because it'll make you better. Because you will have a better life. You will understand grace. You will understand love. You will understand forgiveness. My jealousy is for your sake. Because God wants first place in every space of your life, in all areas of it. God is jealous of every area of your life saying, I want first place in your job and I want first place in your home and I want first place in your community and I want first place in your business and I want wherever you go, I want first place so that I might fill every space so that you might know the grace and the love of Jesus Christ that is with us every single place we go. And what we're going to see in these Ten Commandments is we keep going through this is that these Ten Commandments fill every space and when we break any commandment, nine through or, or two through ten, we break the first commandment. Because by breaking commandments two through ten, what we're actually doing is we're putting something over God that would cause us to break those commandments and we create an idol in our life from breaking commandments two through ten. And we'll see that throughout this summer. And this is the first commandment. The second commandment, just briefly, and we'll revisit this next weekend, but this, this connects to this first commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And God says, because I should be first, because I should be set apart, because I should be above all things and be in all things, that when you take my name and use it in vain, when you just use it as a common word or you use it as a swear word, you are taking what is holy and you are making it unholy and it is no longer first place, but you have brought it down and demeaned it in a way that it ought not to be demeaned. And that's why he's saying, I will not hold guiltless he who takes my name in vain. I have revealed myself in this way. And if, if you're trying to cause other people to honor my name, why would you demean it in such a way that makes it common and every day or makes it less than what it ought to be? And we'll take a look at that more next week as we look at the second commandment and the third commandment. But in these, this first commandment, what we come to see is God reminds us that He is God and we are not. That He is the Creator and we are the creation and that we worship the Creator over the creation because the creation cannot do for us what only the Creator can. Direct us in the perfect way. And when we fall short, which we always will, offer to us a forgiveness and grace that will restore us. I don't know if you've noticed this in the news, but this has been happening for the past few years that there are all sorts of monuments that have been constructed and, and, and built to honor heroes who have come before us. Sports heroes, war heroes, whatever that is, but heroes that all of a sudden are now being torn down. Have you noticed that in the news a lot lately? That they're going back and they're looking at them and going, well, did, they said this or they did this or, or they acted in this way or that way. And, and these heroes, these, these images, these carved images of heroes are being torn down. Why? Because they're sinners. And so are you and I. Which is why none of us should have an image ever erected for us, right? 
because we are all sinners. And we're all going to say things we ought not to and do things we ought not to. We are all fallen short of the glory of God. And if we were honest, all of those images that would be built up to us, they should be torn down as well. Because you and I are sinners. But God shows us a better life. A better life by giving us a better way in the Ten Commandments. But even more than that, a better life by showing us that when we break those commandments, that our God is a jealous God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who sees us in our sin and brokenness and sends His Son Jesus Christ to suffer and die so that the more we know our sin, the more we understand our need for the Savior and the more that we receive and value that grace that can be only given in Jesus Christ, a God who can do for us what nothing else in creation can do because he's done it all for us on the cross of Jesus Christ, which is why we should have no other gods before him or above him because there is nothing that this world can do that God has not already done for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all too often we seek the things of this world. Forgive us when we run after them instead of you. Have mercy on us and, and as we go through the Ten Commandments through this summer, we pray that you would remind us that as we break all of these commandments, what we are doing is we are breaking the first and we are putting something above you that ought not to be. So Lord, forgive us, have mercy on us, and as we see our sin and our brokenness, remind us of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.